Welcome back to the podcast. We are continuing our Keep the Fires Burning series today, a study of the minor characters of the Bible. But before we jump into it, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the ministry here at Evidence for Faith. And I know some of you are like, oh, you're still going to talk about this? Yes. <laughs> uh, it turns out uh, donations are always needed. Um, because we are 100% donor supported, we are able to uh, put on this podcast for free, but not just this podcast, also all the video versions and a lot of our resources um, are available for free through our website. Um, we also do a lot of speaking events, which we're able to put on for free because we are donor supported. So we're able to go to all kinds of places that maybe generally a a uh, paid speaker would not be able to go because if you charge people for speaking, a lot of places may not be able to afford you. So the nice thing with my, Michael and I is that we're very cheap and that we're almost free <laughs> because we decided we're not going to charge anybody to hear the gospel. Uh, but in exchange, we also have to rely on the Lord uh, that he will provide for us and provide for our traveling and lodging and operational expenses, salaries. Uh, Michael does this full time. I'm doing this, uh, at least at the time of the recording of this uh, video, I am still part time, but that's just because I'm still in school. But hopefully I can be able to do this full time and help Michael uh, expand this ministry. You can help support that work by becoming a donor. So you can do that by checking out the top link in the description that will take you directly to our giving page, or you can go to evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. So uh, with that, we are going to jump in our site today. So I'm going to let Michael take it away with Keep the Fires Burning and let's meet Lot. Hello and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. I'm so glad you're joining me today. I have a great lesson for you. Um, this is this is a really interesting one from the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking in Genesis 13 uh, through uh, chapter 19 for many of these passages that we're going to look at in this minor character and see what we can learn, what major lessons we can learn from, from this one. And our story today, um, our lesson for this one is the character named Lot. Lot. And this is all about being distracted by God, uh, from God by complacency. Yes, we can be distracted from God if we become complacent with the world around us. And this is a great example of that as we will study this character. Again, it's a Lot is a, a, an important person. He's sort of a minor character. You don't hear him talked about a lot. I mean, most people know that he, you know, he's in the book of Genesis and he had a wife that turned into salt. But what a, what is his story? What was he like and stuff? Well, let's take a look as we go into this. So thanks for joining me today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up uh, to Genesis. If not, just sit back and enjoy as we go through this. And um, if you're taking notes or whatever, I hope you're all ready for this. This is a fascinating lesson. But before I start, let me tell you a story. One of the most brilliant and intelligent people I have known in my life was a friend of mine whom I went to high school with. Uh, we're going to call him Jim. That's not his real name. We're just going to call him Jim, though. I would struggle to learn material in school where he would just seem to easily glean, glean it. He, it, it just came natural for him not only to learn stuff, but to apply the knowledge that he had. He was truly intelligent. Even so, <laughs> we were close friends. Um, Jim 
uh, knew that there was something different about us besides our IQs. Um, he knew I was a Christian and that the desires of my life and heart were different than his. He also dealt with guilt and shame from his past, uh, while he noticed I didn't dwell with such problems. Uh, when he once asked me about this, I told him that I had repented and was forgiven by the grace of God and that Jesus is a major part of my life now. In time, Jim came with me to my church to see firsthand what my youth group was like that I always talked about. And um, he came to try to figure out what is this Christian life? On that Sunday morning when he came, the Spirit of God convicted him, and Jim repented and accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. We were now brothers. For the next couple of years, I helped Jim grow in his Christian life. I was amazed at how much God put into him. He already wanted to be a medical doctor, but now he felt compelled to be a missionary doctor to Africa. He now had this deep desire to go there and set up a clinic in remote areas where he could heal both the body with medicine and the lost and hurting souls with Jesus Christ. Jim quickly became one of the leaders of our youth at our church. Together, we started a visitation program to go out into the south suburbs of Chicago and try to get young people to come to our youth group and uh, adults to come to our church. We also became key instruments in the adult Wednesday night prayer services. Um, Jim would even sometimes lead the devotional section of those services. Upon graduation from high school, Jim went to a Christian college to major in pre-med on his road to become a missionary doctor. We would write each other about our college experiences as we were in two different schools in different states, and we encouraged each other in the Lord. I graduated before Jim and moved out of the country to teach at a Christian school in the Bahamas. The night before I left the U.S., Jim came over to see me. We sat outside and made a pledge to keep working for the Lord and to keep in touch with each other. Very soon afterwards, Jim and I lost touch, and we never got reconnected. Little did I know that I would not see my best friend again. Years passed. Occasionally, I would hear from other people from the old youth group, but no one ever seemed to mention Jim. Nineteen years later, I finally tracked him down. I called him on the phone and we had a, shall we say, a peculiar conversation. I told him that I was heading to the mission field and dropping my life as a school teacher. He calmly replied that this sounded okay but I noted that his tone was not cheerful. I asked him what was, what was he doing with his life now. He unenthusiastically replied that he was doing fine, that he was making a lot of money working for a large pharmaceutical company. He mentioned that he had received some patents and that his career was extremely successful. He was making lots of money. While he spoke, I noticed that the excitement in his voice that I so longed to remember and recall was gone. I asked him how his personal life was going, and he unenthusiastically replied that he had married a girl in college, that he met in college, um, but that he really didn't love her. They had a few kids, and then they divorced. Then he met and married another girl, but that too ended in divorce. He was now on his third marriage 
but he was not happy with it either. I asked him, well, what's going on in your spiritual life? He depressingly said, not much. Quickly and with no details, he told me that his spiritual life died a long time ago, near the end of his senior year in college. He ended his commentary by stating that he wished he could regain that feeling he had as a teen in youth group, but he said that his career and his success had robbed him of it. I responded that he could come back to God, but he strongly said, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Moments later, we hung up. Sometimes people can get on fire for God, especially in their youth. And then it seems that Satan comes along and snuffs out the flame. He doesn't do it alone. We allow him quite an arsenal to extinguish the flames of our spiritual fire. God gives us an example of such a situation in the book of Genesis. It's concerning a nephew of Abraham named Lot. His story, like Jim's, begins great, but soon we find him in the bog of despair and sadness. We first encounter Lot in our story when he leaves his uncle Abram. Abraham is first called Abram, later is changed. Um, so his uncle Abraham, with whom he has been staying and being very blessed. So if we pick up our story in Genesis chapter 13, verses 5 through 13, and this is out of the English Standard Version. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flock and the herdsmen of Lot's flock, livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abraham, or Abram, excuse me, said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So from this passage, we see a younger Lot who has been tremendously blessed with possessions and a loving family. Because of quarrels between the workers, though, Abraham suggests that they put some space between their camps. Abraham offers Lot the choice of land to choose from. The land of Sodom and Gomorrah are awful enticing to Lot, so he chose that area. Abraham was now extremely wealthy by God's provisions, and he was contented to continue to allow God to bless him in this way. Lot, on the other hand, looked to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the enticements that they had to offer and said, basically, I want to go that way. I've always found it amazing 
You know, I, I, I have. I've just always found it amazing how young people, as I used to teach school and stuff in general, have such a desire to live in big cities. Now, being one raised myself on the south side of Chicago, I always had a desire to live away from such places. Um, even when I worked in Chicago at the John G. Shedd Aquarium, my wife and I did discuss at one point moving into Chicago, but I, I never, neither one of us wanted to move into that city with all of its man-made structures and vice. But most teens I have taught in school seem to relish this type of environment. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that Chicago is Sodom or Gomorrah, no. Uh, but I know that, uh, that vice and other enticements are very abundant there. Where I live out in the forest <laughs> right now, I'm a uh, 20, 20-minute 20 drive to the closest town. I live in the middle of a forest. Uh, you look out any of my windows, all you see are God's creation, just trees everywhere um, deep in the forest. So now, anyway, back to our story here. Lot was no different than some of these high school kids, it seems like. But notice carefully what it said in verse 12, where Lot made his camp. Where did he move to? It reads, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. At least at this point, Lot had the spiritual sense of not moving directly into the city, but camped near them. So it says, among the cities moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, being he was very wealthy, he needed the trade of the cities to grow financially. He had a good religious upbringing through his uncle Abram and had um, a spiritual common sense that seemed to override his desire to live in the city. That, that's all good. That's good. But not long afterwards, we find Lot being kidnapped. Yes, kidnapped. Um, and as we get into this, this is going to be in chapter 14 of Genesis. I want you to look carefully where he's living. Now, as I've said before, if you've been paying attention or listening to these other lessons uh, that I've, I've done on our podcasts and videos and stuff, when you read your Bible, always ask who, what, when, where, why, and how when you read a passage and just look for things like that. We're going to look where where was Lot now living when this happens? So in Genesis chapter 14, verse 12, we read, they, now that's the kidnappers, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, disaster befalls Lot. He's robbed, he's kidnapped. How could this have happened? Could it be that Lot has begun to compromise his standards and morals? We don't know. We don't know. But we know something here, that he is still wealthy, no question about that. And we also know now he is indeed has moved into the sinful city of Sodom. He's not on the outskirts. He's in the city. Anyway, Abram chases after the bad guys and frees his nephew, catches them, frees his nephew and his belongings. That's in verse 16. But um, then we, we come across a span of time, and it's about 25 years pass until we come across Lot again. And so 25 years later, Abraham has just been told by God, he's visited by God and two angels, the three visitors that come to him, um, and the two angels that uh, tell him that, Sodom and Gomorrah are about to be obliterated from the face of the earth because of their sin. 
Now, Abraham knows that his nephew is living in Sodom, and he pleads with God for his life and the life of his family. That's found in chapter 18. Pick up the story now is at the beginning of chapter 19. In verse 1, we read, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, again, who, what, when, where, why, how? Look at these things. Where is Lot when the angels arrived? He's sitting in the city gate. Now, God is informing us of an important detail in the life of Lot here. This is just not telling us, well, he was sitting in a recliner. No, God is giving us detail of this ancient culture here. Um, If you understand the ancient culture, you get to see something. You see, in ancient times, the city gate, it's not just a doorway. A city gate, and cities had these gates um, to, you know, where people would enter into the cities. And it was a place, um, a governmental place, not just a doorway. It's a governmental place where legal issues were conducted. The gate is a large structure with many rooms, not just a door, many rooms. Judges, um, city officials, businessmen and stuff would sit in these rooms and conduct their business inside the walls of the city gate. It's a huge structure. If you ever come to or go to Israel, if you come with me uh, on our next trip, I will show you and explain these city gates because many of them have been excavated to this day. And you can see them and see where businesses were held. And some of these rooms are huge and they had a lot of different uses. Um, but anyway, that's where they're at. And that's where we find us. It's a place to do business and have meetings. We find that Lot is sitting in the city gate. This indicates that he has risen. This is an evening. He, he has risen to some importance in the civil affairs of the city of Sodom. That's what we gather from this. So it's just not sitting in the gate. He's become an official. And he meets these two strangers in the evening and invites them to his home for, even tells why, for safety. So he knows the city he's living in is really bad. During the evening meal, as this continues, Lot's home is besieged by a group of men who exemplify the perverted nature the city has now become infamous for. They want to rape the young men who are actually angels sent by God to destroy the city. And we pick this up in Genesis 19, verses 4 and 5. Now, we're going to read this out of the God's Word translation. It makes it a little easier um, translating from the Hebrew into the Greek on this. I'm sorry, Hebrew into the English on this. And it reads, Before they had gone to bed, all the young and old male citizens of Sodom surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to stay with you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Wow. This is precisely the sin that came to God's attention, and he hated it because it is so against his nature. It's against his natural order of his creation that he has created, and he sent these angels to Sodom to destroy them. In other words, folks, judgment day had come to Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot tries to protect his guests. Now, that's a cultural thing. Um, that you're going to do everything in your power to protect a guest who comes into your home. Uh, that That's even to this day, it's like that uh, in the Middle East. And in doing so, illustrates how degraded, though, he himself had become in the midst of this evil society that he's living in. Because look, listen to what his solution to the danger is. Stay in the God's Word translation. We move down to verses 6, 7, and 8 of chapter 19. 
Then Lot went outside and shut the door behind him. Please, my friends, don't be so wicked, he said. Look, I have two daughters who have never had sex. So why don't you let me bring them out to you? Do whatever you want, uh, whatever you like with them. But don't do anything to these men since I am responsible for them. Can you believe what this man is saying and offering? This shows us that he has compromised his relationship with God for the gains of living in Sodom. Gee, how far this guy has fallen. Friends, we, I mean, what a dad. Friends, we must be careful not to become contaminated by the sinful nature that surrounds us. I'm not saying that we should avoid such people. Oh, no, no, not at all. We are to be a light. We're to be ambassadors of Jesus to such people. For any sinner, we are to love people just as God loved us while we were yet sinners. Now, what advantages could Lot have gained by living in Sodom? Why? Let's just talk about for a second. Why did he move from the outskirts into the city? Why would a person who's very wealthy with a lot of possessions move into the actual city? Like go to maybe Chicago or something of the of the day. Why would they do this? Now, there's many many temptations for families even today. We're going to see what Lot experienced the same the same some of the same thing we have, uh, and there's a number of these. First of all, it was beneficial for business exchanges to be present in the city because the business exchanges take place in the city gate. So instead of having to walk a long distance, if he lives inside the city, well, right there, it makes it very, very simple. Second, it's a place to advertise his wares. I mean, you can set up shop there in the cities. In the gates, just outside the gates, there was usually a marketplace, place to set up stores and stuff. Third, for success in business, Sodom had a lot of shops and markets, making business transactions very easy. Fourth, it was a place to find entertainment when he needed it after working all day. I mean, Lot's a, a person, he's he human, and so he needs some entertainment. Well, you're going to find a lot more entertainment in a city than you're going to be finding out in the middle of the forest. <laughs> I mean, people come to my house to get away from all this and, and stay here and relax here at, at our house because there's nothing around us. Um, there's not much entertainment here. We don't get a lot of uh, um, TV even here and stuff. So there's not much um, in in ways of of entertainment. Oh my gosh, how much more there is in Chicago. And I think that's probably why I'd mentioned before so many high school students that I've taught in the past want to go to the big city because of the entertainment need, uh, entertainment opportunities that uh, the city presents itself. There's a fifth reason. No doubt it gave him a feeling of power to be added to the, civ uh, the civil council of the city. I mean, there is power with that. And people... Uh, some people in particular have a real hunger for power. Um, that's their driving nature. And not just in the secular world, but also in um, the, the church. This happens frequently. People want power. People want to be on an elder board. They want to be a pastor. They want to be in a position of power. They don't understand that by being a leader, you're a servant to the people under you. There's a sixth reason. Living in a city would yield him more friends to relax and have fun with. Well, that's true. When I used to live in um, cities before I moved to the north woods of Wisconsin, I had a lot more friends I could see much more frequently than here in the forest, outside of the people I used to work with um, at the camp I used to work at. There's a seventh reason. Such cities have popular schools to raise kids. 
that was one of the things here. Um, we are a long distance from school, uh, from the schools in the area here. And if my kids rode the bus, they had a very long bus ride. Um, and so um, it makes it a lot easier if you're living in the city to get your kids to the schools and stuff. And also some schools are in cities are very, are very good. Um, not saying the ones in the rural areas aren't. I taught in um, some excellent schools um, that were not in major metropolis cities. But you have much more opportunities in, in um, such cities. And eighth reason, being in, in the city helps being popular with your peers because you're around more people. You can be more popular. And again, some people just crave that. Ninth reason, being in the city offers many hobbies one can indulge in. Hobbies aren't bad. Hobbies aren't bad at all. But uh, matter of fact, they very can be very useful. I used to garden. Um, when I lived back in Illinois, I always had a garden and I love the garden. Um, here, I have too many deer and other animals that would eat my garden. Plus, I have so many trees I'd have to chop down to be able to plant one. And I love having the oak trees and um, the pines and stuff around uh, and the maple trees. Um, so I don't want to take down a lot of the trees. But um, many other hobbies. Um, I used to indulge in making model ships and, and airplanes and stuff. Well, if you're in a city, there's a lot more type of hobbies you can get involved in. And a, and a tenth reason, reason easy uh, also. Being in a city, there's more people there. It's easier to find a mate. True. It's easier to find a mate if you live in a big city. If you go to a big university versus a small little private college or a, um, a junior college or something or um, uh, a trade school, big university, you're going to meet a lot more people. And if you're looking for a mate, you have a tendency of finding more people that way. So well, let, let's just face it. Those, those can be some of the same desires that replace God in a person's heart today. Not all these are bad. No, not at all. Some are very good. But I've seen these same things be used by Satan to steal away the spiritual life of a young Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we need to devoid ourselves to such things and live out in the wilderness like a hermit. That was a popular notion back in the Middle Ages. It doesn't work. That's not what God wants us to do. God wants, doesn't want to pull us out of society. He wants us to be in the midst of the society. He wants us to be a light for the society, the salt of the society. He wants us to be ambassadors uh, to the world. So we must be careful, though, not to fall into Lot's predicament. Thankfully, God did not allow Lot to use his virgin daughters as a sacrifice to these scoundrels. His angels pulled him inside, protecting his family from these perverts surrounding the house. They blinded the evil men and then told Lot to tell his family to leave the city. Now, we pick this up. This is back to the English Standard Version. Um, this is Genesis 19, 12 through 14. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone have you in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went up and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. You see, after this, we see Lot losing everything he had gained in the city. What's he do? He lingers. This happened early in the evening. Now, 
the whole evening passes, and we're going to see he still hasn't left the city as he was commanded by these angels uh, who are speaking for God to do. He's He has a lot of possessions. There's a lot in this city. They're saying, get out of here. His wealth, his possessions, his prestige, his popularity, these are hard items for a lot of people to sacrifice to God. We'll pick up the story in verses 15 through 16. As morning dawned, notice the time. When is this happening now? The morning. Dawn. So the night is now over. He's still in the city. The angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. Look what he does in verse 16. But he lingered. So the men seized him, his wife and his two daughters, by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and brought him out and set him outside the city. Notice they didn't bring his possessions and stuff with him. That might be what Lot was holding on to. Lot just couldn't seem to let go. He, he did not leave the city. We're not told exactly why, but he did not leave as he was commanded. Can't help but think that, wow, I've got all these possessions. I'm a wealthy person. My position, what about my friends and all the other enticements of the city? But for, but for the sake of a promise to Abraham, God has his angels kicked them out, literally pulled them out, just him, his wife, and his two daughters. Nothing else. They haven't packed suitcases. They haven't got camels saddled or anything. They're just kicked out of the city. Though Lot tried to save the others, it's very commendable of him, none of them believed him. With Lot and his family now safely out of the way, God destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, on a side note, let's go off on a little rabbit trail here, because I think this is important. And this is a, a major part of our ministry of evidence for faith. You see, on a side note, some skeptics and critics of the Bible say that the destruction of Sodom is a total fairy tale, that this never took place. It's just a fairy tale in the Bible. Well, recent archaeological evidence from excavations performed by Dr. Stephen Collins and others, they believe they've actually found the location of Sodom. And it's a place that today is called Tal El Hammam. It's in Jordan, on the west side of Jordan. Why do they say this? Well, it sort of fits the biblical things. Let me explain. Some of the evidence attesting to this, there is an ash layer over this tell, over this ancient city that's over one meter thick. The foundations and the floors that they have excavated around there show that they've been scorched by high heat, that some of the floors have actually melted into like a glass. Dozens of pottery sherds have appeared also to be melted and turned into glass. Now, this requires heat far beyond anything an ancient kiln in those days was capable for. Um, the pottery and stuff dates this back to around the Middle Age Bronze, uh, Middle Bronze Age. That's around 2000 BC, which was when Abraham and Lot were living. So it fits the time frame. But to melt this pottery and stuff into glass and these floors into glass, you're talking about a temperature of over 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, that is really, really hot. Um, and a normal kin at that time in the Middle Bronze uh, Age, they just didn't get that hot. So something really supernatural appears had to have happened. And as I say, it fits the biblical time frame as well. Anyway, going back, as the ca catastrophic events are being played out and the cities are being destroyed, Lot's wife is destroyed by God for her disobedience. 
looking again, this is the English Standard Version, um, Genesis 19, 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, this punishment has often puzzled many readers. Um, Christian and skeptics alike, it, it puzzles them. Well, let's go back. When you get in a situation like this where there's a phrase that seems to be puzzling, in this case, looked back, when we see looked, the Hebrew word for the, for the word looked here is nabat. Nabat means to scan or to look intently at something with regards to pleasure, favor, or care. Thus, it's likely that Lot's wife was looking back not to see the destruction, but had turned around to look intently at the city she called home and all of its possessions that she was leaving behind. Now, this was a sin because she was commanded by God not to even glance back to that city he was going to destroy. She defies God, and judgments do come. We're not to do that. So now Lot has lost his wife, uh, besides his future sons-in-laws, and all of his possessions. He's left alone with just his two daughters. But again, we're going to see how far Lot's relationship with God has fallen. The story gets worse. Can it get worse? Yes, it gets worse. Let's read Genesis 19. This is verses 30 through 36. And again, I'm going to go to the God's Word translation to get a uh, more accurate, shall we say, English um, version and more easily understood version of this. It reads, Lot left Zor because he was afraid to stay there. He and his two daughters settled in the mountains where they lived in a cave. The older daughter said to the younger one, Our father's old. No men are here. We can't get married as other people do. Let's give our father wine to drink. Then we'll go to bed with him so that he'll be able to preserve our family line through our father. That night, they gave their father wine to drink. Then the older one went to bed with her father. He didn't know when she came to bed or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, I did it. Last night, I went to bed with my father. Let's give him wine to drink again tonight. Then you'll go to bed with him so that you will be able to preserve our family line to our father. That night, they gave their father wine to drink again. Then the younger one went up to bed with him. He didn't know when she came to bed or when she got up. So Lot's two daughters became pregnant by their father. Poor Lot. This passage shows us how far he had fallen. But also, it shows, if you look at this carefully, what a poor job he did at raising his family, raising his two girls. If this is what they came up with as a, a morally correct thing to do, listen, men, I'm speaking to fathers mostly here. Don't think for a moment that you're raising a family without being a godly, fatherly influence is acceptable. The role of father is so important. Young girls in particular need to see the father God in you. You, dads, are the representative and model for your girls and your sons. You treat them and love them the same way God loves you, dads, and shows it often. Be there for them. Guide them in a deep, loving relationship. 
wow, there's a lot we can learn from this, eh? Well, the story of Lot ends here in Scripture. What an epitaph to his life, too. What a way to end it. But God puts his story in the Bible for us to learn from. He shows us that that the advantages of having malls, possessions, friends, um, Amazon, (laughs) uh, prestige, sports, hobbies, jobs, entertainment, and even places where we can live can easily be used by Satan as a weapon to diminish our relationship with God. We need to be wary of Satan's weapons. Even something that looks harmless can be used against if we're not careful. Satan's smart. Don't let him steal your heart away from God. Be on your guard. For Satan can attack you with very, very subtle things. That's what we learned from this story. In conclusion, let me tell you a, a little story here. An unsuspecting fly was beginning to sense a sweet, sugary smell in the air as it flew over a bog. Flying towards the direction of its origin, the fly noticed many bright red droplets sitting on small leaves on plants. Curious and looking for a meal, the fly landed near the numerous pads of leaves covered with the red drops. He smelled the droplet. It smelled sweet like sugar. Looking around for predators, the fly saw none. These droplets looked delicious. It seemed safe, so he lapped up the juice of one single droplet. It tasted, as he thought, delicious. Ever cautious, the fly scanned the area for predators. Everything seemed safe to him, so he lapped up another droplet. Again, he searched for predators and saw none. So he walked upon the small pad-like leaf and continued to lap up the sugary substance. After consuming one group of droplets, he found that he just craved more and more. He would not stop. Uh, he would stop every few moments and look around to see if there was a frog, a salamander, or a spider. But he saw none. He thought, "I have really found paradise," and. It is all mine. As the minutes passed by, the fly was busy consuming its sugary meal. He never saw any predators around, so he continued to walk around the sugary restaurant he was sitting on. Unbeknown to the fly, the leaves of the plant he was sitting on were moving, but moving at a rate that he never noticed. In his gluttony, the sugary droplets were hindering his walk around on the plant. He was finding it harder and harder to move, but it didn't scare him as the food was so delicious. He also noticed that the leaves had moved up around him, and it almost seemed to him that the plant was trying to capture him, but he was a fly, and this is just a plant. So he was not too alarmed by this discovery as the droplets tasted so good. After engorging himself on the droplets, he tried to fly away. Suddenly, the fly realized he was stuck. The sugary droplets were also very sticky, and the pad-like leaves of this plant were now encompassing him. The more he squirmed, the more he was coated with the sticky, sugary droplets. He was caught by the beautiful, harmless-looking plant, 
which now pressed on his body and began secreting chemicals, which not only killed him, but digested him. The fly had landed on a Cape Sundew in a bog. An insectivorous, or sometimes it's called a carnivorous plant that tempts insects with sweet red drops of sugar on its leaves, and then it devours it to supply chemicals, takes the fly, the insects, and digests it to supply chemicals it cannot obtain in the nutrient-poor soil of a bog. How many people are just like that fly? I hope you're not. Father God, we thank you for this time and this lesson that we have here with Lot. And I pray for all listening that, Lord, we become cautious. Even though we appear to be in a safe environment, we keep our walk closely with you. We feed daily on your word. We talk daily with you to keep our relationship close. And we thank you that you're a God who's always there and you're always ready to listen and you love us so much and you offer us such grace. So thank you and God bless everybody who's listening in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining me. Hope you enjoyed the story of Lot. And I hope you've learned a lot from it that you can apply to your life. That's our main goal here is to, that you learn from the Word of God that His Word is true and ways to help you deepen your relationship with Him. So until we meet again, take care and may God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.